0: Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. I am Matt Kirkner, your host for the Tech Ed podcast. Welcome back. This week we are talking about leadership. We will be talking about advanced manufacturing technology, how we continue to build a skilled workforce, and going deep into a really, really unique and interesting model for educating young people in southeastern Wisconsin. Our guest, by the way, has been a leader in all of these areas, particularly in the last one, where his family has literally invested tens of millions of dollars in a private school in the city of Milwaukee. Another really, really interesting guest for us this week on the Tech Ed podcast. We are talking today with the CEO of Huskell Corporation, Austin Ramirez. And Austin, I want to thank you for taking some time out of what I know is a really busy week for you to spend some time with us here.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start with this. You're a second-generation CEO of Huskell. You took the reins from your father, Gus Ramirez. How do you balance your family's legacy and the history of your company with your desire to put your own mark on the company and to take the organization in new directions?
1: You know, that's a funny question and and a good one. When I joined Husco, one of the things I told myself that I was gonna have as a mantra throughout my career is, is don't screw it up, right? I got the opportunity to come in and be a steward of a really incredible asset that my dad had built over decades. And while, you know, I have my own ideas and my own twists that I put on things, you know, I viewed my challenge as trying to build on this legacy that he had created, not really change it in any dramatic way.
0: So the the mantra of don't screw it up, something that you're uh, managing to do quite well, at least to this point, (laughs) in terms of not screwing the business up and continuing to grow it and and find successful markets, successful ways to engage with new customers. It's been interesting to watch that journey. I often tell people, you know if you're going to step into running a company, I did corporate turnarounds for a number of years, you're better off taking something that is totally screwed up and fixing it (laughs) sometimes than taking something that is working well and trying to find a way to make it work even better, but certainly that's something that you've you've managed to do. On this podcast, we've interviewed Austin presidents of universities. Uh, We've interviewed CEOs of industrial companies. They all talk about the need for more engineers, for more people thinking about STEM careers. Now, you have a degree in systems engineering, which we know is a little bit different from a mechanical engineering or an electrical engineering degree. Help our audience understand what is systems engineering. And how do you use this knowledge as the chief executive of Huskell?
1: Sure. You know, systems engineering is probably uh, most similar to industrial engineering. I would say that it's, you know, a lot of the core fundamental engineering courses, physics, thermodynamics, those sorts of things, but heavy on computer science and you know, applied mathematics. And my dirty little secret is I've never been terribly mechanically inclined. I, you know, I just, it's just not something that I love to do. And systems engineering was a way for me to ground myself in the fundamentals of engineering problem solving while, you know, not having to tax my inability to do mechanical things. So
0: following that systems engineering degree and spending time as the chief executive of Husco now for several years, you did take a hiatus from your role as the chief executive of Husco back in 2016 and 2017 to serve our nation as a member of the class of White House fellows for the National Economic Council an extremely prestigious position, one offered only to a very few number of young leaders across the United States. Tell us about this program. What was your biggest takeaway from the experience? And how do you think it's affected your leadership at
1: Huskell? Yeah, thanks for asking. I was really lucky to get the chance to go spend a year working in the White House and even luckier to do it at a time of transition. I got to work for two presidents. So I worked for the last six months of President Obama's term and the first six months of President Trump's term. I did it, to to be perfectly honest, because I was finding myself caring more and more about social civic issues. And I was getting more and more frustrated with our political leadership in Washington. And I felt like I was sick of complaining. And I thought, you know, I wanted to do something about it and maybe someday wanted to run for office. And this opportunity to go spend a year in DC was a chance for me to kind of test the waters without making a dramatic career change. And I was lucky enough that it was still close enough to, to Gus's time as CEO that he could come and step back in and really run the company while I was away. So I got this great opportunity to really parachute into the, to the top of the White House and see what life was like as a policymaker in dc and it was fascinating i'd say if i had two takeaways there would be this one on the positive side and again keep in mind that i worked for two very very different presidents but i worked on their economic teams and i was amazed how much consensus there was between the economic teams for president trump and president obama and you'd never ever guess that reading the headlines or watching you know pick your favorite cable news channel but the reality is they actually agree on a whole lot of stuff. And that was, I found that really encouraging. The discouraging thing to my time in DC was that despite all this you know, alignment between policymakers on the things that we need to do to make our economy more you know, dynamic and more equitable and, and faster growing, we are just unable as a country to execute on so many things that we agree on because the politics are so dysfunctional. And in fact, you know, the lasting legacy of my time in DC is one curing me of a desire to run for office, but really instilling in me a desire to try to fix what I think is the broken incentive scheme that leads our politicians, who are, by the way, mostly good people, mostly people with good intentions and relatively smart and want to do the right thing, but they respond to the incentives of our voting system, which unfortunately pulls them apart instead of pushes them together. So, you know, I could spend an hour talking about this, but if you want to learn more, I'm leading an initiative called Democracy Found. You can go to our website, www.democracyfound.org. And that talks about some changes to our voting system that I think would go a long way towards aligning incentives that would lead to a more functional politics.
0: So we'll certainly encourage our listeners to check out democracyfound.org. And we'd certainly encourage them to check that out. Let's turn our our sites back now to Husco. And and talk about some of your technology, advancing technology. You're on the forefront of automotive and off-highway component manufacturing. Thinking about EV, you know, electric vehicles, electrification, autonomous vehicle technology, what are some of the innovations that you're working on or
1: seeing in your space? So uh, as you mentioned, we focus on two main markets, what we call off-highway and automotive. And the trends are really, they're driving very different impacts in both markets. So let's take off-highway to start. So off-highway for us means... People like Caterpillar and John Deere making excavators and ag tractors and forklift trucks and skid steers, all sorts of mobile equipment. And the trends in that space, when we talk about electrification, we're primarily talking about electrification of the prime mover. So it would be going from a diesel engine to something that's powered by a battery. But Husco, you know, we don't make powertrains in the off-highway sector. We make hydraulic controls. And even when you electrify an excavator, replace the diesel engine with a battery, you're still using that energy to power a pump. To generate hydraulic pressure which is what controls everything that moves on that excavator and that's what our valve does right we design proprietary hydraulic control systems that connect the input that the operator puts into the joystick and turns that into the motion that the machine takes and so there's there's not a threat of hydraulics being replaced by electrification but what what there is is that there's a need to make those hydraulics more sophisticated, often by adding electronics to the hydraulics. So, what that creates is a tailwind for Husco, where there's a need for more and more sophistication and electrification of the hydraulics so that you can enable things like autonomous operation of construction and agricultural equipment. So, the trends in the off highway market are very much beneficial to Husco. They are adding more content that we supply rather than taking content away. The automotive market is very different. In the automotive market our primary products are related to powertrain emissions and efficiency and a pure battery electric vehicle doesn't need an engine doesn't need a transmission a lot of the mechanical electromechanical components go away when you move from a traditional internal combustion powered vehicle to a battery-powered vehicle so that's been a much more existential threat for us and we've had to really think hard about how do we pivot and use our core technical capabilities to develop a whole new product set that will be relevant in a world where there's a much higher mix of battery electric vehicles. And we found a few opportunities for that that are super exciting and, in fact, sometimes are giving us more content opportunity per vehicle on an electric vehicle than we would have had historically on an internal combustion vehicle. The the two, just to throw two specific technologies are, one is thermal management. In a battery electric vehicle, the management of the temperature of both the battery and the cabin are really important. And for the battery in particular, that's key towards you know, the longevity and the performance of the battery is managing the thermal system that it operates in. So we've developed some exciting new systems in that space. And then also, you know, I would call them transmission technologies, but it's not like a traditional automotive transmission where you've got these multi-speed, multi-gear systems. But in electric vehicles, you tend to have multiple electric motors powering in the most extreme case, you know, electric motor for each wheel of the vehicle. And they need systems to connect or disconnect those electric motors to the wheels so they can maximize the mileage, right? You might need all four wheels powered in some conditions. And in other conditions you only need one electric motor running. And so we've developed some wheel disconnect systems that uh, allow automakers to design those systems more cost effectively and really increase battery life. So Just two examples of many of ways that we're trying to develop new technologies that are relevant on battery vehicles that maybe haven't been relevant on internal combustion vehicles.
0: And two very, very interesting examples and interesting insights. I want to also point out for our audience members, for those students that are maybe in a uh, electromechanical technology program, in an automotive program, listening to you highlighting things like the applications of fluid power, the applications of hydraulic technology electric motors. And for that matter, on the automotive side, as they learn about powertrain and advancing technology in the automotive sector, just a really good set of examples of how what they're learning as they're going through these programs, whether it's a high school tech ed program, a community college program, in some cases, even a a university program, learning about these technologies. Just a a great job, uh, Austin, of highlighting where those applications fall in your business. And I know that was appreciated by our audience. I want to stay on the topic of advanced technology. Your team deploys a number of industry 4.0 technologies, which is another topic we cover quite a bit here on the Tech Ed podcast. And in terms of where you're deploying this technology, I understand vision systems, robotics, uh, real-time data analytics, 3D modeling, and even I love the name Big Hus, your autonomous robot. I'm hoping we can learn a little bit more about that. Tell us about these technologies and how have investments in Industry 4.0 improved your production at Husco.
1: The blanket statement I would give is that more and more process innovation is becoming just as important as product innovation for us. And they're very linked, but both because of the quality standards, particularly in the automotive industry, where there you know is zero tolerance for having any any PPM above zero, as well as because labor costs are rising so fast, are process innovation is just critical to staying competitive and growing our business. So we are constantly trying to innovate with how do we, you know, develop more error-proof, cost-efficient, high-volume process technologies that allows us to be the most competitive manufacturer in our field.
0: So really interesting observations in terms of where industry 4.0 is is innovating your manufacturing, not just your product but within your processes. I want to Mentioned to our audience, if you're not familiar with that term PPM, when we're working in the world of manufacturing and producing product, customers and oftentimes our own quality departments will measure us on the basis of the number of rejects, literally per million. And so when Austin Ramirez says working on PPMs where anything above zero is unacceptable, imagine making a million parts and expecting every single one of them to be perfect. And in this case, using Industry 4.0 technologies to be able to ensure that every single part is perfect to use predictive analytics to ensure that the processes are yielding 100% perfect parts and 100% perfect yield. That's where all of this is going. Can you tell us a little bit more about Big Hus? What is this autonomous robot and how are you using it?
1: Yeah, so Big Hus is an autonomous material handling system that we've developed, and we've only put one in place in our headquarters so far. But it's just, you know, more than the specific impact that Big Hus has in terms of reducing labor costs or streamlining product flow through our facility. It's this notion of constantly trying to find ways to innovate and, you know, make our processes more efficient. And I think that's really, I think it's a key cultural attribute that we have, which is just always looking and taking risks and trying new things and trying to make our processes better. And, you know, I think sometimes when we talk about terms like industry 4.0, it can be so daunting, right? It just seems complicated and like, kind of mushy, we don't really know what that means. And I think for Husco, the key has been focusing less on buzzwords like industry 4.0 and focusing more on finding specific use cases where we can apply technology to create value in the short term. And it may be something like an autonomous robot like Big Hus, that's you know replacing a person wheeling carts around our factory floor. It may be a specific predictive maintenance routine that we implement on an automated production line or or maybe something totally different. But I think really focusing on those use cases that are discrete where you can have an immediate value instead of just trying to apply something because you think it sounds cool.
0: That's a really, really astute point. And we, you know, we're fascinated by you know the technologies that fall under industry 4.0. And we do talk about those technologies quite a bit here. On the TechEd podcast. But the other advice that we give, especially to manufacturers, and we're going to talk about advice for manufacturers here in a little bit, but advice that we give to manufacturers is if you're looking at how do you use advanced manufacturing technology and improving your process, improving your yield, reducing constraints in your manufacturing processes, improving throughput, it really isn't about how do I transform this huge step transformation in my manufacturing operation. It's more about where do I find a problem And how do I use advanced manufacturing technology to solve that problem? And the more that our teams are able to recognize what technologies are available to them, that they can put that to work on solving specific problems. Over time, you can advance to what somebody might consider, quote, industry 4.0. But the truth of the matter is it really is a lean tool. It really is just a system or a set of technologies that we can use to improve the, the manufacturing process, improve our operations, and use them as part of our continuous improvement process. So I appreciate the way that you uh, made that observation regarding the last question. And I think it is really good advice for manufacturers of all sizes. Now I can tell you that we work with uh, a variety of manufacturers. We talk to a variety of manufacturers here on the Tech Ed podcast. Most of them recognizable names. Most of them household manufacturing companies and industrial companies. As we talk to small to mid-sized businesses, a number of those companies may be a little bit on the fence about even considering moving into advanced manufacturing technology, even considering deploying technology like vision systems, like robotics, like autonomous robots. What is a piece of advice you would give to another manufacturer who's still on the fence about making these types of investments?
1: Yeah, a couple. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of focus on solving problems. That's ultimately the purpose of technology. We don't do technology for technology's sake. We use technology to solve problems. And I think that's the first is just to have that lens when you think about industry 4.0 and advanced manufacturing technologies. You know, another piece of advice would be do a lot of benchmarking. Sometimes you're constrained in your imagination by, by what you've seen or by what your history has been. We spend a lot of time benchmarking our suppliers, benchmarking our customers, benchmarking people in totally different industries than we are to try to look for ideas that we can apply in our manufacturing processes. And that's led to a lot of innovation here at Husco. And, you know, the third uh, piece of self-serving advice is we've developed an expertise at Husco in automating processes, right? Automating manufacturing processes using advanced technology to the extent that we're now offering those services to other small and medium-sized manufacturers really in the Wisconsin area. So if you're, if you're stuck, you feel like you don't know where to go, call me and, and we'll get our team over and we can help you think about what sort of tools you can use to automate your manufacturing processes.
0: Well, it's certainly credit to you and to your team for being willing to share that expertise, being willing to share those lessons with other manufacturers as we continue to move our economy here in the United States forward using advanced manufacturing technology. Sure, we'll have plenty of listeners that will be making sure that your phone is ringing and be taking you up on that offer, Austin. Another really interesting set of suggestions using technology to solve problems, obviously, making sure that the companies have the right automation process expertise, benchmarking suppliers, benchmarking other companies, comparing yourself to what other folks are doing. When we compare Husco to other companies, I want to focus on this idea of core values. You know, most companies publish their core values. Those core values could include you know, kind of maybe basic terms like communication, respect, integrity. These are all fine, but they're certainly not as unique or as specific as Husco's core values. You've already touched on one of them in a previous answer, but your core values are intelligent risk-taking, high performance, and practical innovation. Why is it so important to you as the CEO of Husco that your employees embody these traits and the way they go through their work at your company?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking that you asked earlier about the transition between Gus and I uh, and leadership of the company. And the first thing I did when I was CEO was to take a few months and really reflect deeply on what our culture was and what it needs to be for us to be successful. And the three things you mentioned, intelligent risk taking, high performance and practical innovation are the three cultural values that are most critical to our business model and our business model success. And I think that's really important. I think when any company thinks about what their core values are, if they're not linked to your business model, your business strategy, then they're probably too generic. And so, you know, our business model is based on, we develop, we don't have a, like a standard catalog of products. We don't have a business model that we sell through third-party resellers. Our business model is built on directly engaging with big OEMs And developing unique proprietary bespoke products for big high volume applications that they have both on the automotive and off-highway sector and because of that is just you know it's inherent in being successful doing that that we have people that love to innovate and come up with new ideas that are willing to take risks and we put intelligent risk taking in there on purpose right we're not we don't take risks for risk's sake. We always try to take risks in a thoughtful way. And then high performance, I think that's so important because you know we, we're a family business. I think that there's tremendous advantages to being a family-owned business. You get continuity in values. You get continuity in leadership over generations. But oftentimes at family businesses, there can be a sense of maybe not entitlement, but that things are good enough. And one of the things we work really hard to maintain at Husco is an attitude that it's never good enough. I tell every employee that joins Husco that although this is a family-owned business and there's advantages to being family-owned, this business isn't run like a family. (laughs) It's run more like a sports team in that you've got to earn your spot on the roster and you've got to earn it every day. And I think you put those three things together, that commitment to high performance, that commitment to always innovating in ways that add value to our customers, And being willing to take risks in an intelligent way, that's what allows us to be successful in our mission, delivering superior technologies to our customers.
0: You know, that last part of your answer takes me back to an experience I had in my last manufacturing company where we had just finished a record month by a long shot. Phenomenal performance. Really, really proud of our team. Really proud of the result. And Monday morning came around and it's the beginning of a new month. And we celebrated that performance for a period of time. And then, you know, my question for the team was, so now how are we going to beat it this month? And our our vice president looked at me, literally said, when is it ever going to be enough? And my answer was one word, and that is never. We will always continue this business. We will always continue to grow. So I I really like the way that Husco has approached that whole idea. I also like the way you're approaching some of the areas of workforce development. I want to turn now to the Husco Scholars Program which is a partnership between Husco and the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. It's one effort of many that your company has developed to create a pipeline of skilled talent to your organization. So tell us about this relationship with UW-Platteville, about the Husco Scholars Program, and how it's helping to build up your engineering workforce.
1: Yeah, so this is a program that we started really with two purposes. One is, you know, we're always trying to upgrade our talent. We, We never have access to enough high quality people that meet our cultural standards. So we're constantly searching for talent. And in particular, we wanted to have a more diverse workforce. And one of the hypotheses that we have is that particularly for low and middle income students, this notion of going to spend four years on campus, not only not earning income, but paying sometimes astronomical prices and tuition, and then coming out into the workforce with a, a big debt load is not optimal. And instead, if we could recruit high-performing high school kids that want to study engineering, that can come and work for me you know, when they graduate high school, pursue their engineering degree online, which our partnership with Platfella allows us to do, and in you know five or six years, they will graduate with a bachelor's degree in engineering, money in the bank, no debt, we pay full tuition for these kids to get their degrees, and five or six years of work experience. And I think think that's a fabulous value proposition for Husco. I think it's a fabulous value proposition for the students. And my hope is that will allow us to be differentiated in this war for talent, and particularly the war for diverse talent.
0: Great for Husco. Great for the students. Really great for the United States as you think about the fact that we're not going to have to worry about whether or not we forgive somebody's huge debt load coming out of a university that they end up with that degree, a valuable degree, uw Platfield being a great institution, but also end up with that degree and not have that burden of debt, as you suggest, as they're moving on in their life. So there again, credit to you and to Huskell for your vision in putting that program together. I want to talk now about an interview that we saw recently that you did with the Biz Times here in Milwaukee. And the, the article was about 25 big ideas for Milwaukee and Southeastern Wisconsin's future. You said the key to moving Milwaukee forward in the next 25 years is to have the highest performing schools in the nation. Can you expand on the school and what are the keys to achieving something that big?
1: Yeah, Matt, listen, I think more than any time in human history, this notion of intellectual human capital is going to be the key to success in the future. And I, I think that is true on the individual level, right? For individual people, I think it's true for companies and I think it's true for regions. So unfortunately, particularly here in Southeastern Wisconsin, we've got some of the largest educational disparities in the country when it comes to the gap between the rich and the poor. Often that means the gap between minority students and white students. And that's just, that's unacceptable to me morally, but it's also unacceptable to me economically as a business leader and as a a citizen of this region that that exists and that it persists and that it has persisted for decades in this region. So I just, I think it's critical that we close those gaps and that we give these kids an opportunity for success. Too many kids growing up in Milwaukee today don't have the opportunity for success. This is a country where we don't always have equality in outcomes, but I think it's a country where we have to be committed to equality of opportunity. We need to build that here in Southeastern Wisconsin.
0: Very, very well put. Intellectual human capital, says Austin Ramirez, is the key to success in the future. And making sure that that key is available to all students and so that they can they can have that equality of opportunity that you talk about and the same access to high quality education, regardless of what neighborhood they live in. And your family, we're going to just talk a little bit about this, isn't just talking about that goal. You're putting your financial capital, you're putting your reputations, you're putting so much of your resources into building on the goal that you just talked about. So let's chat now about St. Augustine Preparatory Academy, Often called Prep, It's a preparatory academy that your family founded uh, in the city of Milwaukee in 2016, so about five years ago now, to, as your father Gus Ramirez said, quote, be bold and build a school that met our vision for what all kids deserve, which really builds off of your answer to that last question. Tell us, Austin, about this vision. Who are the students that you're serving and what success has the school seen since its inception?
1: Og Prep started, you know, really started maybe not coincidentally. I took over as CEO in 2011, and uh, Gus, my dad, is not cut from the cloth to you know retire to the golf course. And I think that vision for Aug Prep was born about that time, so about five years before we started serving kids. And you know, it stemmed from a lifetime that Gus and Becky, my mom, have spent working on the issue of education, both. Here in Milwaukee and, and, frankly, around the world, they've, they've supported, in particular, Christian mission schools all over the world. And Milwaukee, like I said, has had decades of uh, stagnation relative to closing the education performance gaps that exist in our city. And I think what Gus would say is that he wasn't going to live long enough to see systematic change in Milwaukee, but he could build a school that would really provide a model for what outstanding urban education looks like. And our goal was to build a school that would serve primarily low-income minority kids, and that it would provide not only an outstanding academic experience, but would also allow those kids to have opportunities to participate in athletics and the arts and all sorts of enrichment activities that you know, most urban kids don't get, that I grew up with going to high school in Brookfield, but that most kids growing up in Milwaukee don't have access to. So that was a vision. And I-, I tell you what, we've got almost 1,500 kids at our prep, They just went back to school a couple of weeks ago This at the end of this summer, and it's doing exceptionally well. Our kids are growing at roughly double the rate, the national average, in terms of academic growth each year. It's Our journey has only just begun. We announced a few weeks ago that we're going to do a major expansion that'll allow us to serve nearly 2,500 kids in the next several years, which will make us the largest single campus school in Milwaukee. And we're just excited about the impact we're making in the community and in the lives of the kids that go through the halls of our prep.
0: And let's put that term "major expansion" into perspective for our audience. When you say major expansion, your school announced a forty-two million dollar expansion plan that you plan to complete by May of twenty twenty-three. It will include eleven thousand square feet in expansion space, which will involve additional STEM space. It will involve music athletics, art. I want to focus on the first part of that expansion, that being STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Why is it so important to you to invest more in STEM? And what STEM learning experiences will this new space provide for the AugPrep students?
1: STEM is super important, and we are committed to every single one of our students having significant exposure to to STEM, because we just think it's critical to future careers that kids have that access. I mean, it's so important not just to have a college degree today or a high school degree, but to have a degree that is you know relevant in tomorrow's job market. And I think STEM is just a critical part of that. But importantly, it's not just STEM. We also make sure that every single one of our students is exposed to the arts and to music. And we've got a requirement that our kids take classes in those areas as well. And it's, it's really about developing as well-rounded, fully formed human beings as we possibly can that have the opportunity to then decide if they want to go on and get a engineering degree, or if they want to become an artist or musician or whatever their passion is, but that they will leave log prep being prepared to to be productive members of society.
0: Well-rounded, fully formed human beings. It's just amazing that you're putting that opportunity in front of so many young people speaking of well-rounded speaking of fully formed human beings i think you would probably fit that definition yourself you've accomplished Austin so much academically athletically uh, in your career and at a young age to boot if you could give a high school sophomore one piece of advice as they consider their future pathway what would you tell
1: them you know matt it would depend a lot on the kid if i could go back and give advice to myself As a high school sophomore, I would tell myself to focus more on being kind. And, you know, that may sound cliche, but I was the kind of kid that was always pretty driven and focused and would sometimes and continue to sometimes lose myself to my goals and my ambitions. And that's what I would have needed to hear. But, you know, other kids, they need to hear the advice to take the harder road. I think when I look back on a lot of the decisions I made, whether it was to study engineering or You know, I was an athlete, I participated in long distance swimming, which is a difficult sport, but I always, I always tried to pick the harder thing, right? And I think that served me well throughout my career and really positioned me to be able to walk through lots of different doors. And I think as a high school kid, that's an important concept do the harder thing. Don't, don't take the easier road, take the harder road, and that will set yourself up to have more options in the future.
0: Both my teammates when I was a swimmer and my swimmers when I was a coach. So, and to your point, many of them were wired to take their harder road and to not necessarily do something just because it was easy, but do something because it was worth it. The whole advice about being kind, I mean, that is a message that I think will resonate with just about anybody who's gone through an education pathway. And certainly you and your family have lived out that advice in the way that you're supporting so many students. You're supporting education You're supporting your employees, living your core values, and it's just been a really interesting conversation today. Austin Ramirez, CEO of Husco Corporation, really appreciate you joining us on the TechEd Podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the TechEd Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.